The History of the World podcast, written and presented by Chris Hasler. Volume 3 The Classical World, Episode 65 The Joe Dynasty. In this week's episode, we're going to be picking up on a story that we left in Volume 2 about the history of China. During Episode 30 of that volume, we told the story of the Shang Dynasty of China, who were an important entity during the second millennium BCE. The centre of the Shang's geographical area of influence was the Lower Yellow River, but at their greatest extent, they would stretch their domain southwards to the Yangtze River. The last monarch of the Shang dynasty was King Zhou. King Zhou has a historically bad reputation. He is described as an alcohol drinker, a womanizer, and a gambler. The problem with this description is that it may have suited his enemies and his conquerors to portray him as such in order to shame him. He is still reported to have reigned over his people for almost 30 years during the 11th century BCE. His enemies and his conquerors came from the west, the tribes of the Zhou. It is suggested that the scenario was not unlike that of the barbarian tribes around the Roman Empire, where the barbarians would be learning and benefiting from being the neighbours of a more advanced society. The Zhou are believed to have advanced their own culture thanks to their closeness to the mighty Shang dynasty. They became powerful enough to challenge the Shang, and indeed they did. The Shang and the Zhou almost certainly had ethnic distinction that existed before the fateful Battle of Muye and after. The Shang are described as a people who used the Zhou to conduct human sacrifices to their deities. But after the Zhou defeated the Shang, causing their king Zhou to commit suicide, the people of Shang ethnicity now became the slave class of the new ruling Zhou dynasty. The Zhou would almost certainly use the Shang workforce to help construct their new city of Luoyi, modern Luoyang, within traditional Shang territory. Having conquered the mighty Shang, the Zhou dynasty's territory was vast, stretching from their original heartlands in the Wei River Valley eastwards to the Yellow River, which the Wei contributes to, and which occupies the heartlands of the Shang. So we can recognise a cultural distinction between the Zhou heartlands in the west and the conquered Zhou territory of the east which contained the remnants of the Shang. So we can conveniently refer to these cultural territories as the Western Zhou and the Eastern Zhou. 
The vastness of the territory meant that the ruler relied heavily on the loyalty and good governance of the local lords, who were responsible for organising and defending their lands. The Zhou would have been equally as susceptible to barbarian attacks as the Shang before them. It does seem that Shang traditions appeared to be important to the Zhou in general. For example, the Zhou concept of a supreme deity called Shangdi is believed to have been brought forward from the Shang dynasty. Also well mentioned is the Zhou concept of the idea of heaven called Tiang, which is a development of the theory of Shangdi. So heaven as a concept is synonymous with the supreme deity, and as such, the Zhou kings were referred to as the Tiangzi, sons of heaven, having been allowed to rule with the supreme deity's blessing via the mandate of heaven, the will of the supreme deity. We introduced the concept of the mandate of heaven during our Shang dynasty episode. There would have been an aristocratic class who enjoyed living off of the wealth of the realm that relied on the daily grind of the slave class, but also on the entrepreneurial skills of the merchants coupled with the artisans. All in all, this is really not an unfamiliar trend for the way of life of a large urbanised agricultural ancient kingdom in any part of the world. The Collapse of the Western Zhou Similarly to the Shang dynasty, we have limited information about the earliest years of the Zhou dynasty. Although we have mentioned the fact that we can definitely recognise an ethnic difference between the Zhou heartlands of the West and the former Shang heartlands of the East. We know that the Zhou were a confident and successful dynasty in its earliest years, acquiring more land as opposed to losing it. The power of the Zhou remained in the West until the 8th century BCE, when we can observe the first signs of Zhou weakness. It has been suggested that the system of local landlords, not too dissimilar from the medieval European feudal system, would often bring two chiefs into conflict with each other, despite both chiefs commonly existing within Zhou territory. This may have been a contributing factor to the success of the barbarian tribes who invaded Western Zhou territory during the first half of the 8th century BCE. 771 BCE is the date offered by the majority of sources as the date when the Zhou capital moved from west to east and specifically to the city of Luoyang. The reason for this sudden shift is likely to be a successful invasion of the Zhou lands in the west. The neighbouring barbarians were becoming more threatening over time and thanks to the feudal style of land ownership in the west it is likely that some of the Zhou chiefs may have joined the barbarian cause if they felt that their Zhou affiliation was not working in their favour. With each chief likely to be expected to donate military manpower to the Zhou's central army, they would have undoubtedly have understood their own value and felt brave enough to oppose the central state if they had enough allies. 
Confidence in the centralised Joe state was diminished by this turn of events and the Joe would not be able to regain the power that they once had, leading to a fragmentation of the imperial lands, which could be compared to the intermediate periods of Egypt when centralised power declined after the eras of the older Middle Kingdoms, for example. This period is referred to by historians as the Eastern Zhou period in recognition of the fall of the West. Spring and Autumn period The Eastern Zhou period is separated into two periods. An earlier period called the Spring and Autumn period and a later period called the Warring States period. The reality of the transition of power from Western Zhou and the subsequent fragmentation of the rest of centralised Zhou state meant that the map of China had irreversibly changed. The power of the local states increased and centralisation had become a memory. We can feel confident that the local states were not collapsing themselves as we still have strong cultural indicators for this period and a general advancement into the Iron Age. So it was not quite like the late Bronze Age collapse in the Near East where cultural advancement really slowed down afterwards while everybody suffered. One of the more significant local states was the state of Lu, centred at its capital city of Chufu, which is still a capital city of the modern Chinese Shandong province. It was from the year 722 BCE that a chronicle was recorded in the state of Lu, and the chronicle was called the Spring and Autumn Annals, which is why we give this early period of the Eastern Zhou the name the Spring and Autumn Period. The chronicle was kept up to the year 481 BCE, but it is not totally clear whether it is a contemporary rolling chronicle or something that was written all at once during the 5th century BCE. The fragmented states of Eastern Zhou China battled for supremacy over each other. Another significant state was the state of Qi. Thanks to the ability of its ruler, Duke Huan of Qi, and his advisor Guang Zhong, the state of Qi achieved hegemony over many of the Eastern Zhou states. If we look at the list of kings of China for this period, then Duke Huan is not listed among them, which points us towards a nominal monarchy who ruled in name only, while the actual man in charge was Duke Huan. After the death of Duke Huan, other competing states would vie for supremacy, such as the state of Jin under Duke Wen, as well as the states of Qin and Chu. The nominal monarch was the king. The actual ruler was called the Ba, which we can approximate to mean a hegemon. If we review our episode on the Shang Dynasty, who ruled Chinese lands back in the 2nd millennium BCE, we described the discovery of a Shang grave, which has been deemed to be the final resting place of the wife of a Shang king. Her name? Lady Fu Hao. 
One of the significant factors about her grave goods was the presence of cowrie shells, which were strongly suggested to be used as currency during the Shang dynasty. It would be during the spring and autumn period that we would see a progression in this early development of Chinese coinage. When we talk about coinage, we think about small circular metal items, but coins developed during the Zhou dynasty took on different shapes, such as an agricultural spade, and there would be more diversity of shapes over the later centuries of the Zhou. One of the main successes of the Yellow and Yangtze River Valleys was the fertility of them. Successful agriculture led to wealth. Wealth led to population growth. Population growth led to urbanisation. Urbanisation led to stratification. And stratification led to taxation. So the fertility of the river valleys would contribute towards a generally healthy economy despite the fragmentation of what we could describe as the imperial state. So this is an interesting dynamic when compared to similar world cultures. The culture of Zhou China It seems that despite the questionable centralisation, or indeed at times the lack of it, in the Eastern Zhou dynasty, it did not stifle the cultural development of China when compared to the rest of the world. Great literature was being produced as we enter the 6th century BCE. This would become more significant as the centuries rolled by. By the year 600 BCE, many hymns had been written and these would all be carefully collated into a book of songs by the very famous philosopher born in the 6th century BCE. This philosopher is very well known to history by the name Confucius. Confucius has become a significant figure in history with his philosophies of human morality having a profound effect on many both during and particularly since his lifetime. Confucius himself was undoubtedly influenced by the chaos of China going on around him, driving him to reflect on the value of good over evil. Confucius's philosophies have become known as Confucianism, and his moral teachings are comparable to those of the Buddha. Confucius himself would have been influenced by the writings of his forefathers, such as those who had composed the hymns that he gathered together to compile the Book of Songs, with many further writings inspired that are attributed to Confucius himself. The cornerstone of his philosophy on how one should live their life was encapsulated by the golden rule, what you do not wish for yourself, do not do to others. The biggest difference between Confucianism and Buddhism is the fact that Confucius's teachings were geared towards the goal of being virtuous as opposed to achieving spiritual enlightenment to ascend to a higher plane of abstract existence. The goal of Confucianism was for the individual to achieve something called Ren, which can be translated to mean the successful mastery of humane empathy especially in relation to your attitudes towards your fellow human being. In other words, being a good human being as opposed to being a bad human being. It is for that reason that Confucianism is considered to be a philosophy of life as opposed to a religion, 
as with Buddhism, highly linked to spirituality. In a war-torn environment where Chinese states battled for hegemony, the human spiritual battle was enough to just want to improve real life without worrying about what might happen after death. In Indian lands, the most respected philosophies of this period were those of the Buddha and those of Chanakya. Chanakya was the political advisor to the first Maurya emperor, Chandragupta Maurya, who we spoke of during episode 59. Chanakya's philosophies dealt with the matters of state, a much more pragmatic treatise dealing with everyday governance. We can see a similarly valued school of thought in Zhou, China, with the compilation of a text called The Art of War, which was composed at a similar time to Confucius's lifetime, around the turn of the 5th century BCE. It is suspected that the author of this work may have been the military strategist called Sun Tzu. As with the teachings of Confucius, the art of war is still read by people of importance all around the world to this day, so profound are the fundamental messages within the text. The art of war is not simply a book of military strategy on the battlefield, but also a study of the reasoning and consequence of war from a political point of view. From a philosophical point of view, it would question whether the destruction of an enemy actually successfully achieved goals culturally and economically, suggesting that needless destruction comes with a financial expense that leads to generations of resentment, which manifests in ill feeling that will inevitably lead to further conflict at a later time. It is also interesting to consider that these great ancient philosophers and philosophies of China predate the others mentioned in this podcast series from India and Greece. The Warring States Despite the work of Confucius and Sun Tzu attempting to install some sensibility to the entire system of China, there was no one overbearing power and just a group of small entities attempting to gain superiority over one another. As some of these smaller powers, of which there were originally over a hundred entities, possibly comparable to city-states, some would emerge as gaining control over their local neighbours, not unlike the situation with the Mahajanapadas of the Ganges River in ancient India before the Mauryans were able to create an imperial state. Around seven great entities emerged from this complicated and competitive politics of China that demonstrated a power that could be considered as dominant over their local tribes and city-states. The greatest entities were the Qin, whose capital was near to the capital of the Western Zhou over 300 years earlier, Chu, which covered vast areas centred around the upper Yangtze River, the Qi could be found in the east, including the Shandong Peninsula, which juts out into the Yellow Sea. The Yen could be found just north of Qi, along the northern banks of the Bohai Sea. The Jin would cover the inland areas north of the Yellow River. Many other smaller states would exist 
other than these five larger and more powerful entities. All of these entities would have ambitions of hegemony, and due to their growing size, the battles would turn from localised skirmishes to full-scale battles. With there being a number of large states vying for hegemony, it would come as no surprise to learn of there being intense diplomatic movements, as the states would also look to avoid the expense of warfare, especially if the two states going to war would have a third state waiting to mop up the remnants. One of the first major developments was when the vast state of Jin started suffering from dissent between the dukes and the nobles, and this would eventually lead to three aristocratic families rising to supremacy over all of the other nobles, and so these three families would partition Jin into three domains under the control of these families. Namely, the Han, the Wei and the Zhao. The following century, which was the 4th century BCE, with the partition of Jin, there were around seven major states vying for hegemony of the Zhou dynasty's lands. There were a number of separate states outside of Zhou land, so civilization in China was not restricted to the lands of the Zhou dynasty only. As we mentioned before, the state of Qi occupied lands of the east coast on and around the Shandong Peninsula. A powerful family had controlled power in the state, regardless of the feelings of the duke, who was the head of the state. The powerful family was called the Tian family, and after one of the dukes had died without heir, the Tian seized power and declared the state of Qi independent from the Zhou dynasty. The weakening influence of the Zhou dynasty was beginning to cause states to consider independence and take control of their own fortunes under their own rule. Over in the west were the lands of the state of Qin. A man called Shangyang had migrated to the state of Qin from the state of Wei. He was a philosopher and he specialised on political matters of state. He was also a military strategist, so he was undoubtedly a highly intelligent man. He would even lead a Qin army against his own state of Wei, where he was born and bred, and Qin would reward him handsomely for his efforts. Shang Yang would propose radical political reforms of the Qin state, which would involve nationalising land ownership and making the population directly accountable to centrally appointed governors as opposed to local landlords. He would also propose obligatory military service for individuals. The head of the Qin state was Duke Xiao, and even though Shang Yang's reforms would have had to have been approved, the nobles who had lost out thanks to Shang Yang's proposals firmly put the blame at Shang Yang's feet after Duke Xiao died in 338 BCE. Shang Yang would now be exposed to those who despised him, including the incoming ruler of the state, Hui Wen. Hui Wen would oversee the brutal execution of Shang Yang, who was torn apart by chariots. 
Nonetheless, the impact of Shangyang's reforms saw Huiwen declare himself as the king of an independent Qin, in much the same way as the Tian dynasty had done in the state of Qi. Shangyang's philosophies would become treasured as great literal works of Chinese philosophical history. The centralised Zhou dynasty was all but finished when its states were declaring independence and their ruling dukes were declaring themselves as kings. We know that the state of Yan in the northeast also declared its independence very soon after the Qin. The Chu in the south had been expanding its own area of power at the expense of surrounding territories, thereby becoming a bigger threat to the other states. Continuing Cultural Development Despite Shangyang's life ending in shame, his work would demonstrate the intelligent thinking and the recording of it going on in China at the time. We also know that Confucius had tried to promote a wholesome way of life, but he would have shuddered to think that the lands of China would be war-torn and in political turmoil for the two or three hundred years after his lifetime. It may have been during this warring states period that a man called Lao Tzu was alive, but no one is completely sure, with some even suggesting that he was a contemporary of Confucius, which makes his lifetime earlier than the warring states period, right at the end of the spring and autumn period. Lao Tzu philosophised that the universe was underpinned by an intangible quality called the Tao which is central to everything that exists, and that the universe relies on the balance of opposites to maintain harmony with Tao. Those who are enlightened to the ways of the Tao are considered to be the ones who have discovered the most fundamental wisdom, so it is regarded as a mental achievement. Lao Tzu would also philosophise about a quality called Wu Wei, where harmony could be attained on a practical level. For example, if all matters of state were being run in the most optimal way possible, then it could be perceived that the leaders would need to do nothing other than allow things to just peacefully be, without unnecessary interference. This would be the successful achievement of the concept of Wu Wei, and would agree with the philosophies of Confucius. The fundamental difference between Confucianism and Taoism would be that Confucianism was much more of a way of life, whereas Taoism promoted deity worship and could be considered much more like a genuine religion. Taoism would be a popular part of Chinese history and it is still adhered to in the present day by many societies of China and of Chinese culture. Confucianism was more idealistic than the much more pragmatic Taoism and the state leadership philosophies of Shang Yang. With the Warring States period reaching a crescendo, one man would take all of these concepts a stage further, and his name was Han Fei. Where Confucius suggested that the best society would be one that could live without law, Han Fei would counter-argue that human nature is essentially self-serving and that benevolence is something that humans may or may not develop and as such 
it would be much more philosophically correct that society should always live under strict laws. It would be much more attuned with the Taoist philosophy of Wu Wei that suggested that good governance was the thing that was much more effective if the goal was to have a harmonious society that needed little day-to-day hands-on administration. The combination of these philosophies is called legalism, which in short declared that legislation is the best way to prevent negative action based on natural human selfish impulses. The Rise of the Qin The seeds of legalism were planted during the reforms of Shangyang within the state of Qin during the 4th century BCE. The Qin would have taken command of many of the tribes to the west of the Zhou dynasty and therefore grew in stature and size with particular thanks to the aforementioned reforms. It seems that the Qin developed an appetite for further power and expansion. At the start of the 3rd century BCE, two of the three former Jin states that had emerged from the partition mentioned earlier in the episode decided to join forces against the aggressions of the Qin. They were the Wei and the Han. The Wei and the Han did not have a lot of positive regard for one another, despite their common Jin origin. But the threat of the Qin was now fast becoming considerable and so an alliance was regarded as necessary. Accounts suggest that the combined forces of the Wei and Han alliance may have been as many as a quarter of a million. The Qin didn't have that kind of number, but they recognised levels of distrust between the Wei and Han and sought to exploit them where they could, playing on the tensions between them. For example, they would attack one state's military causing them to question the loyalty of the other if they were not quick to come to their rescue. The result of the altercations came at the Battle of Yiche in 293 BCE when the Qin scored a decisive victory over their foes and marched into the territory of central China for the first time. It would be soon after this that the third of the Jin state children, the state of Zhao, had become drawn into the conflicts against the Qin and the battle would continue on for the next 30 years where it would escalate to a conflict called the Battle of Changping in 260 BCE. The battle may have taken place a couple of years earlier than this but for the fact that the Zhao believed that it would be more beneficial to them to wait for the Qin to approach Changping, stretching their supply lines and giving the Zhao the optimal chance of victory. When the fateful day came, it was estimated that around half a million individuals represented both armies on the field of battle. The Zhao were eventually besieged within their hill fortress and there was nobody coming to their rescue. So they were starved and then they surrendered. The cost of the experience hurt both sides, with the Zhao never being able to recover. The most startling report from this battle is that the Qin, under the command of a military leader called Bai Qi, would carry out the mass execution of the Zhao army. An army that was hundreds of thousands in size and supposedly buried 
alive. Whatever the entire truth, we can be sure that by now the Qin were claiming to have complete hegemony over the Chinese states despite needing to recover from their exhausting campaigns against the Zhao. The Zhou dynasty by this time had become somewhat meaningless and the Qin were now the ones to be feared. Thank you very much for listening to this week's episode. Quite a complex subject matter that the uh, the Zhou dynasty that went through many different uh, transformations throughout its history, uh, but we had to cover it and we had to generalise quite a lot of important stuff as well, such as uh, Confucius, Taoism and uh, the spring and autumn period, the warring states as well. It was very uh, difficult, especially for uh, westernised people to uh, to get to grips with all the Chinese names, those little one-syllable names, uh, sometimes difficult to get your head around instantly. But um, hopefully I made it as simple as possible. So uh, hopefully understood it. And, and I hope I didn't water it down too much so that the generalisation of Confucianism and Wu Wei and all that sort of thing uh, was was a little bit too simplified to actually justify the the actual meaning of these things. So, which is much more in depth than uh, than I was able to be uh, uh, to be able to portray in this week's episode. So, I hope it was a decent episode. I probably ought to make a side apology for my rubbish pronunciation of Chinese names of it, but you got to give it a go, haven't you? You got you can't shy away from it. You got to go for it. Now, if anyone has any real sort of first-hand knowledge of Chinese history that can benefit me in terms of uh, refining any of these episodes or, or even better get into grips with some of the aspects, then I'm interested to hear from you. Um, I'm, I'm sure there's many that can educate me and it can be difficult for someone who's not of Chinese stock to maybe grasp some of the concepts um, as well as maybe someone who is of uh, Chinese uh, descent so uh, you know I would be very grateful and very interested to hear from you if you've got any criticisms of, of this week's episode right let's have a look and see who's been contacting the podcast um, we've got um, Candice Will has put kudos Chris I discovered your podcast yesterday I'm up to volume one episode 10 love it thank you I will write again I'm sure something a bit more substantive but wanted you to know how much I appreciate what you have put together. My two-hour walks fly by. They may, may become three-hour walks. And that's from Candice, uh, Jupiter, Florida, USA. Well, yep, try those three-hour walks. It, I get plenty out of my three-hour walks, um, not least of all cracked heels. Now, I think I may have mentioned that uh, Rob Warner who's a regular listener to the podcast and, and often writes to me, um, brought up the subject of arrows in uh, warfare um, in terms of like um, archers and uh, archery, generally the subject of archery. And he was, uh, he was fascinated by the fact that arrows once shot, what would happen to them? Is that, was that the end of it or were they, uh, re, uh, were they reused? Were they recovered? 
and um, someone has uh, well, he has he stumbled across a, a, an interesting uh, brief uh, article about uh, this very subject and uh, how coppicing uh, was able to um, create the the perfect size uh, piece of wood that would would be for an arrow and and how um, the the arrow head was moulded together and and um, and attached to the to the shaft with pitch and um, how um, it would really be more interesting for people to recover the shaft than the head so the head was was the least valuable part so very interesting I'll try and uh, twist his arm into posting it on the discussion forum. I, I noticed that he, he joined the discussion forum and, and I'm hoping that I can twist his arm into posting it on there. If you've not joined the discussion forum, it's, it's worth it. If you've got any general questions, there's a number of people now using the forum and, and very, to varying degrees of knowledge as well. And, and it can, you know, if there's a, is there a gap in your knowledge and, you've, and you want to ask a question, don't don't email me. Put it on the discussion forum. I don't want anyone to feel like they're making a fool of themselves by asking the question because it's by asking questions that we learn. And, uh, you know, I certainly would be happy to kick anyone off the forum if they're making fun of someone else for asking a question. Um, certainly, um, I've asked um, thousands of stupid questions in my lifetime and I'm not ashamed of any of them. So, uh, by all means... Come onto the discussion forum and, and open up a discussion. There are plenty of people there that will be very interested in reading your question and giving their answer to you. And, and between us all, maybe we will uh, get it correct. Maybe we'll get to put the world to rights in terms of uh, the study of history. So if you want to find the discussion forum, just go to the History of the World com website and click on the interact page link. And uh, you'll find the discussion forum is the very first thing on that page. Now, while you're on the History of the World podcast.com website, why don't you consider helping to support the podcast? You can make a monthly donation for as little as $1 a month. And let me tell you, that all of these contributions they really add up and help me to produce this podcast. And they help me to improve the quality of it. I can invest more time into it. Um, listen, it really does help me out greatly and, and I appreciate everyone that does. When you um, join uh, the Patreon page and, and sign up to make monthly uh, donations, that's where you click on the Patreon link and it will take you through to the website or you just sign up, make any kind of contribution, you become a lifelong member of the History of the World Podcast Illuminati. It's a, a serious distinction that in in your human lifetime to actually have that on your CV, a History of the World podcast Illuminati member. I say CV, you call it a resume over over the other side of the pond from me. So, uh, but yes, nonetheless, as a History of the World podcast Illuminati member, you can actually qualify for rewards for cumulative contributions to the podcast. You can get fridge magnets, and you can. Get, you can commission your own episode. You can even get a T-shirt. Um, you know, there's it's plenty. It's all there. It's all on the Patreon website. If you go along and visit, have a little read of it and and sign up and, and become a member of the History of the World podcast Illuminati. As 
has just uh, just checking my list here. We've got uh, Anirudh Nikhil has become uh, a lifelong member of the History World Podcast Illuminati. Thank you so much for uh, for helping the podcast out, and it really does help. Tufik Tamim has written to me on Facebook and put, Hi Chris, very well done on the History of the World podcast. The explanations, voice and tone are clear and the content is so interesting. I am on Volume 1, Episode 7 and I think I will finish all volumes within a month. God, God, that is hard going. That is really tough going, that. I find them to be very enlightening. Thank you so much for your hard. Um... Thank you so much. That must be hard. You've missed out the word work, I think, there. Thank you so much for your hard work. You are making it easy for us all to understand the history of mankind. I'm a big fan of Neolithic and the Bronze Age and can't wait to reach this period, but would not want to miss out on previous sessions. Um, thank you, Tufik. That's a very, very kind message, and, and thank you so much for taking the time to write in. Okay, reviews. Let's have a look at the reviews that have come in. So, um, firstly, we've got uh, Dr. M.C. Williams. Uh, it's, you sound like a, a rapper there, Dr. M.C. Williams. Um, it's, but doc, Dr. Mark C. Williams via Apple Podcasts Australia has put wonderful, wonderful and intriguing accomplishment. Um, Lord John via Apple Podcasts Great Britain has put a great history podcast. I can't recommend this podcast highly enough. It's exactly what every history lover needs, and Chris does a fantastic job transferring all this knowledge effortlessly. Keep up the great work, Chris. Thank you. And uh, Jer from Escondido via Apple Podcast, United States of America, has put fantastic podcast. The no-nonsense yet enjoyable presentation makes this podcast outstanding. Thanks, Chris. Well... What a good week I've had. You're all so, so kind. And um, almost feel embarrassed reading them out. I do because... But I do feel like I owe it to you to do so because you've taken the time and the trouble to, to actually do it. So it can be nice to hear your name over the airwaves. So, um, so it's my pleasure to do it. But um, goodness me, it just seems like you're all so full of kindness and, and uh, positive energy and... and um, kind words so I can't thank you all enough it really does mean a lot um, next week we're going to be continuing our our timeline of China so really like for, for a couple of episodes now going forwards we're going to be just uh, following the timeline of China really and then um, ultimately culminating in a, in a little look at the Silk Roads because this is an important development uh, that we really need to sort of tie up that story, but um, we've got a bit to cover before that. We've got to talk about the Qin, who have taken over in China now, and uh, and then subsequently the Han Dynasty as well. So we've got to take a closer look at them. But that's all to come in the coming weeks. Next week it's the Qin Dynasty. What happened to this brutal and power-hungry regime that was taking over China? Find out next week in the History of the World podcast. Until then, be good. Come to the History of the World Podcast.com and join all the other hot worlders on our wide range of social media. Why not support the podcast by clicking the Patreon link or buying me a book 
and becoming a lifelong member of the History of the World podcast, Illuminati. Drop me a line at historyoftheworldpodcast.mail.com and let me know what you thought of this week's episode. See you next time.